If you're watching from home, greetings. If you're here for the first time and we haven't met yet, my name is Mark. I get to serve as one of the elders at our church, and I have the privilege of bringing the sermon this morning. This morning, we are um, taking a one-week break from our Amazing Grace series in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we're going to talk about fasting. So hold your applause. I know how exciting it is to think about not eating. So why are we talking about fasting this morning? Why, in fact, are we uh, initiating a week of prayer and fasting? So over the past several months, I would say God has been putting on the heart of the elders to uh, really just call our church together for a week of prayer and fasting. And Edward, uh, in particular, and Kenneth assisting him have, have led us in this. And so thanks, guys, for that. And um, thank you, Edward, for clapping for yourself. Um, as we're getting started, you know, what's really becoming evident, this has been a fascinating experience, we're realizing that fasting has become sort of a forgotten practice in the church. Few practice it. The books that I'll mention in just a moment are great books. They were written in the 1990s. There's not much being written about it. And we haven't taught about it and really provided uh, much leadership in this area as well. And so if you're new to fasting, if you don't know anything about fasting, if you've never fasted, our hope is that this week, maybe you can sort of like meet a new friend and make a new friend. Or if you've fasted before but kind of gotten away from it, maybe you can get introduced to an old friend. And that's kind of been my experience. I've been thinking about this over the past few weeks, and I realized in my 20s and 30s, I fasted pretty regularly. Um, I remember just newly married. I was working at a kind of a Home Depot type home center. I was working in the warehouse and every Monday I would just skip lunch and I'd go walk around out in the parking lot and I had a missionary friend that I had committed to pray for every week and I would just skip that meal to, to pray for uh, th those, those people. And um, uh, as I got started working as a pastor, I would fast uh, often, uh, every month, I try to take a day away to, to spend some time with the Lord and fast and, and, and pray. And then I look back now, but in my 50s and 60s, I've hardly fasted at all. In fact, years have gone by with no fasting whatsoever. And so over these past few weeks, I've been getting reacquainted with this old friend. And I'm both kind of excited and I'm also humbled. And I realize, man, I love eating. And it's like, it's amazing. If I, you know... If I'm fasting like by 8.30 in the morning, I'm just dreaming of all kinds of food. It's just incredible how that works in my mind and heart. And so I hope this is something that we can walk into and just take a step together in. To help you, uh, there's a frequently asked questions, a document that's been emailed out to the church. But if you didn't get that, it's at the Welcome Center. And there's a couple of books that I want to mention. John Piper has a wonderful book called The Hunger for God. There's a few copies of that free over here. You can pick one of those up afterwards. They're for sale in the bookstore if you don't get here in time. And, and he's the inspiring uh, 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 stirring up hunger for, for God guy. Donald Whitney, his books are over here and also in the bookstore. There's a chapter on fasting in, in that book. And he's the one that will sort of orient you to sort of the biblical data. Why did Christians and, and God's people fast? What are the purposes behind that? What are some of the practices? It's a little more uh, how-to, uh, whereas uh, Piper's a little more on the inspiring side. So, this morning, what we wanted to do is we recognize that we need to lead through teaching. So if we're going to 
uh, if we're going to fast and pray together, we want to talk about fasting. And so we're going to go to uh, what John Piper calls the most important text in the Bible on fasting. And I agree. I think this little passage is is so important because here Jesus is, he's not giving a, a, a full tutorial on, on fasting, but he's saying one very simple and clear thing, and that's this. Jesus expects that his disciples are going to fast. And I'd never really wrestled with that or gotten the, the full impact of this text until I've been stewing and, and, and chewing uh, in it over the, the, the past few weeks. So I hope this text will be a, an encouragement and a blessing to you. We're actually going to hear Jesus teach us about fasting as we turn to Mark chapter 2. And so Larissa is going to read the scripture for us. So thanks, Larissa. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Great. Thank you, Larissa. As I prepare to pray, I recognize this passage can be a little confusing. There's, there's a picture about a wedding and a bridegroom and a patch and, and, and wine. And so let's ask the Spirit to help us uh, open the eyes of our hearts to understand this passage. Oh God, we pause to pray out of humble dependence upon you. We need you. And yet we also know we have you, or more importantly, you have us. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you're the God who is not silent, but you're the God who speaks. And we thank you for speaking to us through these living words. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to understand what you're saying to us through these words, to enable us then to live in the good of and walk in the good of fasting as disciples of Jesus in a new way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love weddings. I love that moment when the bride comes into view for the first time. You know, here sometimes there's a wedding and those doors get closed and then everybody's ready, everybody's assembled up front and then the doors open and you get to see the bride for the first time. I love in that moment, not just seeing the bride, but I love looking down and watching the groom's face. And I love being able to see his face when he sees his bride on their wedding day for the first time. I remember my experience seeing Leslie come down that aisle. I felt like my, my smile was going to break my face. I was so excited. I love weddings. And weddings, you know, weddings are times for joy and celebrating, right? Have anybody ever been to a wedding where people fasted? Like generally, that's, that's kind of not how it goes at weddings. Weddings are times for feasting, for celebrating, for joy. And Jesus teaches us that all of this has something to do with fasting. When he's asked about fasting, he explains it initially through a story about a bridegroom. Why does he do that? What does 
What do weddings and, and a bridegroom have to do with fasting? And what we're going to see as we look at this passage is Jesus is teaching us that weddings aren't the right time for fasting, but other times are. And we're going to see that we live in those times. So we're going to open up this text through four simple questions. First, why fast? Second, why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Third, why do Jesus' disciples fast? And then fourth, how should we fast and pray together this week? So let's, let's look back at verse 18. Please keep your Bibles open, available as we go through. Verse 18 says this. Now, John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that's Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So here's the scene. Jesus is out in Galilee. He's out teaching and healing and casting out demons. He's gathering followers. And as usual, he's creating controversy. And now some unnamed people come to him and they've noticed something strange. Hey, John the Baptist, he's fasting with his disciples, and these Pharisees, they're fasting, but Jesus, your disciples aren't fasting. What's going on? So let's just pause and think for a moment about fasting, which is typically understood to be the voluntary abstaining from food. And we can observe, if you just stop and think about it, people all over the world fast. There's nothing uniquely Christian about fasting, right? Buddhists fast. Hindus fast, Muslims fast, you know, Ramadan is a, is a season of, of fasting for, for uh, Muslims. People fast in protest of something, we call that a hunger strike. Um, people fast for health reasons. Uh, intermittent fasting, I understand, is very popular uh, right, right now. So there are a variety of reasons why people fast, and there are a variety of benefits to fasting. But the fasting that we're talking about here in this passage today isn't an effort to improve one's weight, uh, lose some weight, improve your health. But what we're talking about is fasting for spiritual reasons. And if you go back and say, well, what's the, what's the background to this? You can read the Jewish scriptures. You can read what we call our Old Testament and find fasting in those scriptures. In fact, the, the primary one that comes into view is in Leviticus chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement, the big day when the high priest goes in to make atonement for the sins of, the, of himself and the whole nation. That was called, uh, that was a day when the people of Israel were told to, quote, afflict yourselves, end quote. You know what that means? That means fast, which kind of tells you something about why they were fasting and how enjoyable it can be to fast. Afflict yourselves, right? So other days of fasting developed later, and generally fasting, as it comes into view in the Old Testament, is an expression of humility. It's an expression of repentance and grief over sin. It's an expression of being in a crisis or great need, calling on God for help. And that fits right in with what John the Baptist was up to. John came preaching a gospel or a message of repentance, calling the nation to repentance. And so no wonder fasting was part of that. But what about the Pharisees? Just pause and think with me for a moment about the Pharisees and the fact that it, it appears that the Pharisees were accomplished fasters. That is an important data point. I want you to just think with me for a moment about this. So Jesus, in fact, will tell a parable in Luke 18 about a Pharisee in the temple praying. And you know what he says? He says, in effect, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all these other losers, but I fast twice a week. 
All right, so think about that. What we learn from the fact that the Pharisees, who are sort of always the bad guys in the gospel stories, right? The Pharisees were fasting. That teaches us that there's nothing magic about fasting, right? If you're a self-righteous person and you fast, guess what you are when you're done fasting? You're a more self-righteous person probably than you were at the beginning because you're just reinforcing that self-righteousness through fasting. And so fasting that doesn't proceed from humble dependence on God isn't going to produce much or actually can take you in the wrong direction. So there's nothing magic about fasting. We're seeing here people can fast for different reasons and they can fast with different results. So what do we as followers of Jesus need to know about fasting? Well, let's turn to the next question because people pose this question to Jesus. Hey, look, if all these other people are fasting, why aren't your disciples fasting? So look back in verse 20. Why don't, excuse me, verse 19. Why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Verse 19, see what it says? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Okay, so he's answering a question about fasting by talking about a wedding. So, again, just try to picture the scene. These were people who, that, that, that lived in Galilee. They lived in villages in that area. They all knew, <coughs> excuse me, how wedding parties, <coughs> excuse me, uh, worked. The whole village would gather for the day. It was a big, big gathering. And again, what's the mood at a at a first century wedding in Galilee. Well, just like today, it's a, it's a day of celebrating. It's a time of joy. It's not a time for mourning or fasting. And Jesus says, well, that's the case now because something has happened. What? What does he highlight here? Look at, again, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What's he saying? Who's the bridegroom? He's not just giving a, a random illustration. He's saying he is there as the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, why does he identify himself as the bridegroom? And it'll be evident in just in, in verse 20 that he is the bridegroom because he's going to be taken away. Why does he identify himself as the bridegroom? It's not a random connection. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find that there's a theme of God as the groom or the bridegroom and Israel as his bride. The, the, the prophet Hosea had much to say about this. Isaiah 54 says, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Israel, your creator, God is also your husband. And so Israel was always getting into trouble because they were spiritually speaking an adulterous bride. But God reveals himself as the bridegroom. And now with Jesus on the scene, something new has happened. Something that's interrupting fasting. God has come in person for his people. Advent has occurred. The son of God has arrived on the scene as the bridegroom for a people. And Jesus' disciples, he explains, are like guests at a wedding. And that's not the time to fast during the, the celebration of the wedding with the bridegroom right there. Jesus says, as long as they have the bridegroom, they cannot fast. Now, 
want you just to slow down with me for just a moment and ponder. What would it have been like to be there with the bridegroom? What would it have been like to be standing there, just like we're all assembled here, you can hear my voice. What would it have been like to be right there and hear Jesus teach? To hear him instruct someone? To hear him say grace before a meal? What would it have been like? Can you imagine the experience of having him call your name? Just hearing his name, his, his voice. Say your name. Can you imagine just the experience of, of just having him lay his hand on your shoulder? The bridegroom was there. And, and the experience of the people who were with him was, wow, this is like nothing I've ever experienced before. To be with him is to be in the presence of joy, God himself. King Jesus has come. As he says in chapter 1, bringing his kingdom with him. His kingdom is right here at hand because the king has come. The bridegroom has come for his people. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. It's present and future. But Jesus standing there is evidence of the nowness of the kingdom. And this bridegroom, of course, he did fast, right? He fasted for 40 days, battling the devil. His fast in the wilderness parallels Moses' fast in the desert before Moses led Israel out of slavery and to the promised land. And now, the one who's greater than Moses, he's come and he begins his ministry fasting so that he can lead his people not into a patch of land in the Middle East, but into the promised land of a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, and to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So while Jesus is on the scene, the bridegroom is here and there's no need to fast. So what does that mean? Does that mean the fasting's days are over? Is it going to disappear with other Old Testament practices like not eating pork or offering sacrifices in the temple? Well, we'll see in verse 20. No, it's not yet the end of fasting. Look at verse 20 with me. Why do Jesus' disciples fast? Hear Jesus again. The days will come, future tense. So we're shifting from present to future. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So here's a calendar question for us. When was Jesus taken away from his disciples? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. What's he talking about? Is he talking about that Saturday when he's in the tomb in between crucifixion on Friday and resurrection on Sunday? Well, surely he was taken away then. But what about afterwards when he ascends to heaven? Is that when he's taken away? Is this the day for fasting? Or was the day for fasting just that little window while he was in, in, in the tomb? So let's think about our situation. Is Jesus with us or not? Well, he said he'd send the Holy Spirit. He said he wouldn't leave his, his disciples as orphans. And so he is with us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So is he with us? Well, yes, he is. And yet at the same time, can, can we see him? Is he physically present? No, we're waiting for him to return. Now we walk by faith 
and not by sight. But one day, we will walk by sight. It's better to walk by sight. And we can't wait to walk by sight. So right now, we live in that day when we are in between his advents, waiting for his return. And that means this. Hear these words. And then, in that day, then they will fast. Let that sink in. They will fast in that day. Are you and I living in the day of Christian fasting? Chew on that. The answer is yes, we are. Jesus expects that his disciples will fast. I'll tell you, I've been reading my Bible a long time, and the weight of this has never landed on me until these last couple of weeks. He simply expects that we're going to fast. So let's just think a little bit about fasting. And if this is making you nervous and concerned, I just want to encourage you, whatever God calls us to, he always gives us grace empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk into. So what is fasting? Donald Whitney writes, fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So again, it's not just giving something up for weight loss or to... to Uh, in an exercise of willpower. It's for spiritual purposes. And he goes on to point out in the book, and we want to observe as well, that though fasting in the Bible typically is, just as he describes it, uh, abstaining from food, fasting can also be understood more widely than that as abstaining from other important things, other legitimate things, other necessary things for spiritual reasons. And so we might widen the definition just a little to say fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food or other things for spiritual purposes. And so one might choose to fast from social media or watching TV or going to the gym or other practices and good gifts that God gives in order to pursue spiritual benefit. Now, what is that spiritual benefit? What are these spiritual purposes, these spiritual reasons? So we need to know not only what fasting is, but why Why do Christians fast? Well, the short answer that we want to propose here today is simply this. We fast to increase our hunger for God and his purposes. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. But we fast to increase our hunger for God and his purposes, which is what's behind the name of the book that John Piper wrote on the topic. See, fasting is an expression of humble dependence upon God while we wait for the bridegroom to come back and set things right. Think about how this works. Think about your situation. Jesus comes and he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so if you're a Christian, there's a sense in which your hunger has been eternally satisfied. To the bottom of your soul, you have been Atone, your sin has been atoned for. You've been reconciled to God. You've been declared right in God's presence. And so there's a sense in which that longing that we were, the, the, those, those vain hopes that we kept trying to, to find to feed ourselves and be satisfied out there here and there and all these other places, they've been fundamentally satisfied in coming to know and be known by the great triune God. And yet, this side of heaven, we're not home yet, are we? And we're still hungry. We've tasted and seen that he is good. But we want to taste and see more. And you know, part of how this can work is the good things of this life, the good gifts that God gives, 
the vacations and the movies and dark chocolate and a thousand other innocent delights that God provides, all those good gifts can subtly dull our appetite for Christ and his kingdom. Jesus says in the parable of the four soils that the cares of this world and the desires for other things can choke out the life of the word in us and leave us unfruitful. And so we, we begin to see that, you know, sometimes we substitute those gifts for the giver. Sometimes we can run to those gifts for comfort instead of running to the giver. Sometimes we can be satisfied with those gifts instead of being satisfied with the giver. And so how do we, how, how do we combat those, those tendencies? Well, when we eat, we give thanks to God for his good gifts. Food is a gift from God. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. When we eat, we give thanks to God for his good gifts. And when we fast, we fast to increase our hunger for God. We fast because we've been satisfied and we fast because we're still hungry. We're both satisfied in Christ and at the same time dissatisfied. There's this holy dissatisfaction that we experience this side of Christ's return. We're we experience a holy dissatisfaction every time we cave in to temptation. We believe the devil's lives. We experience a holy dissatisfaction with the evil and the brokenness of the world that we live in. We experience a holy dissatisfaction when we consider the reality that millions of people alive and breathing on our planet right now have never heard the news about Jesus Christ. We experience this holy dissatisfaction when we consider our unsaved family members or co-workers or students, people that we know and love who are on their way to hell without a redeemer. And so there's this sense of, of, of being satisfied and dissatisfied, of having eaten and still being hungry. John Piper writes, we ache and yearn and fast to know more and more of all that God has for us in Jesus. So why do we fast? We fast to increase our hunger for God and for his purposes. I, I think we see something like this in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, there's this church in the city uh, called Antioch. And the leaders there, it says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. It doesn't say there was a crisis. It doesn't say there was any particular uh, agenda uh, 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 or, or thing that they were seeing the Lord for. They were just worshiping the Lord and fasting. And in the midst of that experience of, of increasing their hunger for God, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Saul and uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So what happens in the midst of this seeking the Lord, just spending time with the Lord, communing with the Lord, stirring up hunger for God, worshiping and fasting, mission is initiated. The Holy Spirit speaks. And then in the next verse, it says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them out. Fasting stirs up hunger for God and his purposes. Fasting sensitizes us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to the work of God's kingdom, to the realities, the eternal realities that we live in every day, but we can become dull to. So we fast in order to increase our hunger for God 
and for his purposes. And that leads us then to the last question and some of the most confusing parts of this little passage. So let me close this message out by asking the final question, how should we fast and pray together this week? And let's go back to verses 21 and 22 and try to figure out what Jesus is talking about with these patches and, and this, this new wine. Jesus says, look, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. Okay, that's story one. Here's story two. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What's he talking about here? He's speaking 2,000 years ago in an agrarian culture, and we don't live in our technological world quite like this, so we don't have this problem with sort of patches tearing away. And I don't know how many of you have wineskins in your house, but I don't have any wineskins in my house. I don't think I've ever even seen a wineskin. So how, how does this work? Well, he, he's talking about you've got, a, you've got an old jacket, uh, and, and, and it gets torn, and you sew a patch on it, but the patch is a new fabric, and so when you wash it, the patch shrinks, and you get a bigger tear. So you shouldn't have mixed the new and the old. And then the wineskins, it's like they, they, they were using leather wine bottles, and they were reused. And so after a time, those wine bottles would get stiff. They, 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 they weren't stretchy anymore. And if you poured new wine into one of those old stiff wine bottles, well, that new wine was still fermenting, and so it would create this gas and it would expand. And if the, that wineskin wasn't flexible anymore, it would crack. And so you'd both break your old leather bottle and you'd lose the new wine. So he's, he's saying, look, you need to know what's old and, 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 and put the old with the old. And you need to know what's new and keep the new with the new. And so we need to know to get this, we've got to understand what's old and what's new. It's simple. What's old and what's new? Because the moral of the story is don't mix the old with the new. So let me try to give you an example from our world today. Think about a guy who's maybe got a construction business and he buys a new pickup truck. He's got a, a gas pickup truck. He's got one of those big ones with the big double tires and everything. And he decides to buy a new one and the new one is diesel. So now he's got a gas one over here and a diesel one over here. Here's the deal. Don't take the gasoline from the old, the, the kind of gas that you'd put in the old truck and put it in the new diesel engine. Know what's going to happen? You're going to ruin the diesel engine and you're going to wreck the gas that you're going to put in there too. Don't mix the old gas with the new diesel engine. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. Gas goes in the old truck, diesel goes in the new truck. So what's old and what's new? Here's what's old waiting for the Messiah to come for the first time. Here's what's old, living under the law. All those things we've been talking about in our series in Galatians, circumcision and observing the, 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 the Sabbath and the whole system of temple and sacrifices and priests and all that stuff based in Jerusalem, that's all part of the old covenant. And now that the bridegroom has come, that's being fulfilled and, and is no longer going to be needed. But what's new What's new? What's this new patch? What's this new wine? It's Christ bringing his new covenant. It's Christ coming as the new high priest who makes the once and for all sacrifice. But it's not a lamb. It's himself. And offering that sacrifice, he creates then the opportunity for a new covenant so that his people can have new hearts. And in those new hearts, there will be new desires. And the Holy Spirit will live there so that each 
person who's one of his followers will be a temple of the Holy Spirit. All that is new. Now, here's the question. Where does fasting fit? Is it just part of the old or is there a new for fasting? And the answer is, in that day, my disciples will fast. New wine, new fasting, new covenant. Fasting is intended by Jesus to be part of the new covenant. Fasting doesn't pass away, but it gets transformed into something new. The gospel, here's good news. The gospel makes it possible for Christians like you and me to fulfill Jesus' expectations for us to fast. How? Well, kind of like what we've been learning in Galatians. You're not saved by faith and then you fast by really hard work and willpower. No. You're saved by faith and you fast by faith. You are not fasting alone. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now we walk by the Spirit and we fast by the Spirit. We've experienced joy at Christ's first advent and we experience this longing for this second advent. And so when we fast, we fast looking back, remembering Christ has come and looking forward, longing for and hoping for his return. And as we fast, we have no reason to ever think that we need to do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God because Christ has already done everything necessary to make you acceptable to God. So fasting isn't part of climbing some spiritual ladder in the hopes that somehow God will bless you and be happy with you. No, Christ has already taken care of all of that. Christ came down. He took the ladder down into our world so that we can be reconciled to God. Fasting doesn't need to lift you up in some spiritual progress to be accepted by God. So we fast with all that security and hope and joy and confidence and empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's the new kind of fasting Jesus' disciples walk into. So what about this week? Why are we fasting and praying? No crisis here. We don't have a laundry list of urgent needs we're bringing to God. We want to increase our hunger for God. And we want to declare our humble dependence on God. We fast, quoting John Piper again, that God might awaken in us a new hunger for himself. Oh, church, wouldn't that be wonderful? What if at the end of next week we say, wow, I'm hungry for God in a new way. That's what we're fasting for. God might awaken in us a new hunger for himself, a new fasting, not because we haven't tasted the new wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it and long with a deep and joyful aching of soul to know more of his presence and power in our midst. Do you want to know more of God's presence and power? I hope you do. I do too. Let's fast and pray for that experience. And I'll tell you, as I've been kind of getting going fasting again over these past few weeks, month or so, I, I'm, I'm experiencing, it's, it, it's a little scary. Like, can I still do this? Am I too old for this? Like, can, do I remember how? Can, do I, am I going to make it? Like, 
but, but I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing a stirring in my soul. And, and, and I, want to, I want more of that. I want that hunger for Christ to, to deepen. I'm looking forward to this week. A few practical suggestions. If you've never fasted before, I just want to encourage you, read, you know, do some good reading from one of these books that were circulating. John Piper's uh, introduction is, is available uh, electronically, and it's very encouraging. And, you know, just start somewhere. You don't have to, no, nobody's expecting everybody to fast from today till next Saturday. Like, that's not how it works. So we want you to fast whenever works for you and whatever God gives you faith for. And if it's just start with a meal, skip breakfast, and, and, and don't just rush off and do, now you've got an extra period of time. No, take that time to seek the Lord. Take that time to pray. What if you're not able to fast from food? Not everybody can do that. Not everybody's in a life stage or health situation where they can do that. That's okay. God's going to meet each one personally, wherever you are. It, so question, is there some sort of normal activity maybe you could give up and just spend that time in prayer instead? Maybe setting aside social media for some period of time or Les and I are going to turn the TV off for a week and, and, and uh, spend some more time praying. W whatever you decide to do, I want to encourage you, as you set something that you normally do aside and then you find your finger wants to scroll to, on that social media or you find that your stomach is growling or you find that you're wishing you could turn on that TV, TV that's the moment to just pause and recognize that's a moment of grace. That's the moment to stop and say, oh Lord, this much I need you. I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. How I need you. And let's just allow this week to, to stir a, an awareness of that hunger for God. Third, I want to just suggest, uh, if, if you're on our mailing list, you're going to get a daily devotion every day this week starting tomorrow morning. And those are designed to help you sort of know, uh, uh, give you a direction for prayer. And we'll be sort of following those in the, the prayer meetings that we have. But you can do that on your own as well. And so those emails will come out each day, and uh, hopefully those will be a helpful prayer guide for you. Fourth, if possible, gather with the church sometime this week or maybe several times this week for prayer. We're going to be praying over in room 102 here at 7 a.m., noon, and 7 p.m., Tuesday through Saturday. At noon, there's a Zoom option as well. And so whenever or however you might be able to come, it would be great to be able to gather together. And we want to seek the Lord together. Just like those leaders in Antioch, they were just together worshiping the Lord and fasting. Who knows what the Lord's going to do this week? And then finally this, if possible, if you can only come one time this week, come Friday evening. We really want Friday evening here in this room to be a, a, a time to just joyfully worship the Lord, give thanks to him, pray to him together. So that, those are a, a few thoughts for kind of how to get started this week. I want to encourage you, if this seems scary, if this seems intimidating, I want to encourage you, when we obey God by faith, he always meets us. He will meet you this week. And if you try and you fail, if you get hungry and you eat and you're disappointed, I want to encourage you to live in the grace of God. The bridegroom wants you to experience fellowship with him this week. And the bridegroom wants to stir your heart with growing anticipation for his return. And for his work in you and through you until then. Some have wondered, are we going to do this again? Another week of prayer and fasting sometime in the future? And we really do want to do this again. But, you know, we don't want to 
get going too fast, before we make any plans about what we're going to do in the future, let's walk through this week fasting and praying, seeking the Lord together. And then we look forward to debriefing with you about your experience. And then we'll make some plans for where to go next. Why are we fasting and praying this week, church? What are we doing? What are we up to? We want to increase our hunger for God and for his purposes. Amen? Okay, let's, let's now transition to having the Lord's Supper.